Red Glow is an everything photography podcast covering the entire range of photography from chemical, darkroom, and alternative-based processes all the way to modern digital photography and beyond. Be sure to visit us at www.underredglow.com. And now your host, John Milliker Jr. Hello and thank you for joining us for episode 87 of the Under Red Glow podcast. My name is John Milliker. I'm a full-time photographer, practice teacher, demonstrates me only every photograph practice history, including modern digital game techniques. And with me in studio is my co-host and lovely wife, Christine. She practices and demonstrates many processes as well and is our entry-level process and kids' class instructor. Welcome, Christine. Good evening. What's going on? It's <clears throat> been an interesting week weather-wise. Yeah, weather's, uh, man, it's been nice out. It's almost been, you know, almost like spring is here. Yeah, but there's a lot of rain in the forecast coming up. Well, there wasn't this week. I mean, we had we had a really nice, uh, we had really nice weather. And uh, it's going to be a good day today. I think this Saturday coming up, it's... They're calling for rain and 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 kind of cooler, but you know when I say cooler, I don't think we're ever going under like fifty five again. Yeah, Hopefully. that's nice. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, and then we have um, yeah, we have uh, a nice nice looking week of weather next week, and then at the end of next week we have uh, our very first outdoor event of the season. Kind of kind of early for this, but we'll be at uh, Manassas National Battlefield in virginia and uh we'll be there on their program for uh, march uh, 26th and 27th at the henry house uh making uh demonstrating talking and uh and making tin types for the park yeah looking forward to that yeah that should be a lot of fun uh we're still a little early and uh, and they have accommodations for us in they, they have accommodations for us either either way if it's going to be cold or if it's going to, um, you know, if it's going to rain, then uh, we'll we'll switch to indoor tin types. But I, I hope I hope we don't. Yeah, it'd be nice to be able to be outside. Exactly. And um, and yeah, we're not really sure. We have to look at the weather at, at night because it still gets a little chilly at night. And we have to figure out, are we, um, you know, we're, we're taking our tent and setting our tent up. Are we hanging out? and staying the night in the tent or are we staying the night in the back of the pilot with the with the jackery and the and the the electric blanket i'm not really sure yet we haven't even really talked about that to be honest with you yeah we haven't gotten that far maybe that's something we'll talk about this week um got got the chemistry mixed up and uh and we're good got uh, i think i think we're good um and i got the i got the the early chemistry that has to ripen in the, the collodion but um I, I still need to filter chemistry and just kind of make sure that's all good and we'll be we'll be hitting the ground running. But that'll be fun. We'll we'll get some we'll get some video and audio from that. The the DJI microphone uh, still hasn't released yet. Still kind of they're hoping now for uh, what is it April sixth? Yeah, something like that. The it latest keeps delaying. Yeah, and I think with everything going on in the world, uh, we'll be lucky if we get it before twenty thirty. All right. After this, uh, after this uh, break from a word from our sponsor, we're going to talk a little bit about some uh, some really interesting photography news, and then it's somebody's special birthday today, and we're going to figure out who it is. Stay tuned. All right, Christine, 
what ha- would happen if you put your eye up to the viewfinder of your camera and you're like, damn, there's something blurry in there, something fuzzy, and you pull it away from your face and right like millimeters away from where your eye was, there is a spider. I pray to God I won't scream and drop the camera. <laughs> and then, yeah, you would after this, and then the spider moves. Uh, I would not like that. <laughs> I would not like that at all. <laughs> Petapixel re, uh, Pixel reports on um, a uh, photographer, Canadian photographer by the name of Joel Robinson, and he has a uh, Sony A7R three, and uh, he's been using it for the last almost a year, and he lives, you know, mostly in, and he's been using it mostly in the UK and also in in Canada. And um, he says he haven't been to any spider-heavy locations. Um, but but here's the thing: the the that camera is sealed. Yeah, that's so weird. I wonder how it got in there. And I don't know how. I, it makes me wonder: at what point did that spider get in the camera? I mean, I don't think, what kind of spider is it? Is this a spider that's that's usual to um, the UK and to British Columbia? Or, I don't know, maybe maybe Sony polishes the viewfinder with spider eggs and one got loose. I don't know. I have, I have no idea. Um, In the article, he wonders if it was on one of his lenses whenever he, he connected it. But, but it, still, they're... they're Cameras are very sealed, and especially mirrorless cameras, because when you look through the viewfinder, it's no longer you're no longer looking through the actual lens. It's no longer an SLR, which is single lens reflex. You kind of look through a pentaprism. You bounce off the mirror. You look through the lens. You see exactly what your camera sensor will see. Right. The viewfinder is just a is just a sealed housing, and they're going to seal it up as best as they can to keep dust out. But all it is is a, all the viewfinder is a tube and a monitor on the other side, an LCD. I don't know. I don't know how it happened. I mean, it, it the, but, but that's the only thing I can think of is maybe it was, you know, maybe somehow it had gotten in there in manufacturing and it hatched. But, but I mean, this thing, I mean, it's, it doesn't, it's not as, as big as the entire glass of the sony what did they say the ax7 the a7r 3s viewfinder but i mean it's with its leg stretched out it's about it's about half the size yeah and um, so but my question is how what method of fire do you use to destroy everything <laughs> not that i'm you know I'm, the spiders are are as long as they're not moving, I'm okay with spiders, and I have to, you know, shoot several of them out of the house for Christine. But uh, when those things start, they're squirrely suckers, man. And making webs and stuff like. Oh, I don't how, care about the webs. But if it's inside your camera, what's it gonna do? Like, uh, there's no room to make a web for this thing. And how is it getting air, food? Like, makes you wonder how it's still alive. I don't know. And he said it'd been alive for a little while, and he was still using it. Yeah, no, it's okay. 
I yeah, I couldn't I couldn't put it close to my eye like that. No, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but the article does go on to say that uh, he's been living with his new spider friend and hoping that it will find its way out. Here's the problem. I think the spider got in when it was smaller. I think it's I think it's stuck. And and the problem is, is sadly, like you said, with food and, and air and I mean, spiders being the pure, pure evil that they are, they probably don't need air or food. <laughs> just to just to spite us, right? But um, but the problem is, he's 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 probably expecting that the spider will probably end up perishing inside the camera, and then he'll have to send it to Sony to get <laughs> despidered. <laughs> yeah, he said he was planning once it died to send it to Sony to get it get the spider removed by cleaning it. Yeah. Uh, oh, he actually talks about throwing it, uh, you know, lighting the camera on fire. Um, I've had a range of, uh, by the replies I get, I've had a ranged, I've had ranged from complete panic to suggesting I like the camera on fire. I'm, I'm, I'm really liking the fire out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It's a little expensive though to be just setting it on fire. And and here's the thing: if you're a if you're a if you're a real arachnophobe. Does this ruin photography for you? If that's you? I hope not. Yeah, that would suck. <laughs> that would be pretty terrible. I don't like spiders, but I uh I don't think I could destroy a camera because of one. Yeah. We'll put the link to this article in the show notes if you want to read uh if you want to read the whole thing and see the absolutely wonderful photos. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, it's a it's the back of a camera with a spider in the viewfinder behind you know behind the the main lens. So enjoy that. <laughs> what else we got? Well, I don't know if this is obsolete or not, but there was an article about Flickr of all hmm. things, and it's how they're taking a stand again on artistic nudity and encouraging uploads without bans or deletions of accounts. Okay, well first but, say Flickr. I'm thinking, what is this? 2004. Yeah. But then you say, okay, what's uh, what's going on? They're, they're allowing I – mean, they well, here's the thing. Are they allowing artistic nudity or are they pretty much saying we're not going to ban you for anything? The articles seem to make it s- that they weren't going to ban anything, which could get a bit out of hand. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to find some more some more news on that. I thought it was on Petapixel. It might have been one of the other. Uh, TechCrunch is reporting um, that Flickr is um, Flickr wants to put restricted content behind a paywall. So therefore, you are going to need to pay and get a a Flickr paid account. I mean, let's let's be honest. Flickr hasn't. Uh, what was Flickr? What was Flickr's pay account? Flickr Pro. Yeah. Flickr. Oh my goodness, I had that for. I had that for several years, but you know, after all the the screwing up that that Yahoo did, and and after Verizon bought it, and then um, and then now Smug Mug has it. I mean, they're not they they can't make money. Well, and they did away with all the things that people went to it for the most, like the forums and. I can't even remember. I think the forums are st- honestly. I think the forums are still there, but after Yahoo bought it. They they did that remodel, 
and they made all the people's profile pictures circles instead of squares, and that that really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But I believe the the the, the communities are still there. The groups are still there. It's oh. just that they've destroyed the, the, the this whole mess of stuff. I mean, a lot of a lot of good photographers left them. Yeah. And when Verizon bought them out and then owned the owned the copyright to some of my best images, I I pulled out. I delete everything. I put a thing like, "Hey, you know, sorry, I'm no longer here," which sucks because I had, you know, I had a, a very, uh, a very popular explorer photo with the the Atlant with Atlantis, the space shuttle Atlantis taking off. I mean, I've 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 lo I loved Flickr, and Flickr's thing. All it had to do was all you had to do was not screw it up, Yahoo, and you screwed it up. All you had to do was just don't touch it. It didn't need to be remodeled. And then they remodeled, they half-assed the remodel, they half, they remodeled half the site, they did this, they did that, and it was just garbage, and, and so many people fled. Flickr would be amazing to this day if they if they would have just left it alone. Yeah, it would have been a little bit antiquated, they could have made a couple design changes, but don't screw it up, just don't touch it. And, um, but I mean, I had the paid Flickr account for, Oh, geez, years, years and years and years. And then when Yahoo bought it, they got rid of the paid Flickr account. And and I remember having to go back and forth, back and forth. It's like, no, you're, you need to take my money and keep me on this because I don't want to, you know, I can't remember what it was. Oh, no, but I remember going back and forth and getting really heated with them. And then they brought it back and they doubled the price. And I think they took some of the... I think they took some of the um, the stuff you get for that price away, but yeah, Flickr sucks at making money. It's sad because when you tell me that Flickr is now allowing nudity, it makes me think artistic. It makes me think good, clean, photographic art. But when you tell me that now they're just, you know. They're allowing um, restricted and moderate content, and uh, and I'm I'm seeing um, I'm looking at a TechCrunch article that says um, they're also allowing full frontal and acts of two nude people together, sexual acts, which tells me Flickr is now going to be the new OnlyFans. Well, I guess it wouldn't be the new OnlyFans because um, because the creator wouldn't get get that money. But the problem is, is Flickr is already a wasteland of animated GIFs and terribly processed cell phone photos. Flickr used to be like a really amazing place to see really amazing photography. And you could get good stats on your things. That was one of the things the pro account That's what gave it was. You. That's what it was. It was the analytics. Because at the time, I had actually, you know, because my Flickr account was, was, was really, really good. And, uh, and I believe I had used my website. And I, but back before I switched over to this custom, you know, custom piece of software, um, I would, uh, I would send people over my blog posting. Oh my goodness. I forgot about the blog I had for the longest time. And, uh, but blog postings and, and photo shares and all that fun stuff, it would, it would link to the, the, the photo on Flickr. And, uh, and then I would record the analytics and kind of see what was doing well and what wasn't. But it scares me with the quality of photos on Flickr today.
Not that there aren't people that are uploading good stuff, but usually, really, it's a it's a wasteland of what it used to be. All the good photographers, or the majority of the good photographers, left, and the people that think a cell phone and um and uh, and cat ear, the cat ear filter and the cat nose filter, where it replaces your nose with a cat nose and puts ears on your head. Those kind of people that think that's high art. And they always did allow some artistic nudity on there. I, you just had to put that warning window on and make it an adult account or something like that. I can't I forget, remember. I forget what, exactly what it was. It's been so long since it was. I can't relevant. remember. So so I, I really can't comment on that. But, but the thing about Flickr was. And yeah, maybe there was a you know an, a, an adult or, or NS, NSFW, not safe for work kind of filter to turn it on to make sure that whoever's looking at it is 18. But because I used it for my website and I used it for my blog images, I don't think I ever put any artistic stuff up on Flickr. It just it just didn't seem the place. It seemed like it's too much of a wholesome place to um, to kind of really do that. So I, I can't remember. I can't remember what which one it was, but um, <clears throat> I I still don't like it. I still don't like it because a lot of uh, you know when when you when you think about internet, there's a lot of those um, non art. Well, I don't want to say it's non artistic, but there's a lot of the erotic photos out there. What's Flickr going to do? How is Flickr going to change that? I think it's going to run away. It's it's going to chase off any people that are still using it for what they think is, whether it is or isn't, that they think is art. And I, I worry that it's going to be just a, a, a pornographic site, and then it'll live forever. I, I just think Flickr needs to die at this point. Yeah. I hate to be like that. Flickr, I loved you. Uh, we had we had lots of lots of great time together, but if you're not making money, either sell it off to someone who thinks they can it. And, and let's be honest, there's no way Flickr's coming back. You know, everybody who used to be on Flickr has has made their own Facebook groups for better or for worse because we don't like Facebook. And people is you know, people have either moved on and just stopped worrying about. Uh, I remember being in a group called Squirkle. It was a, a it was a circle inside a square. Anything you do, you you make a you, you photograph a circle, you square crop it, squircle. I loved it. I loved seeing all the images every day. I loved the discussion. You know, I think those people have have just moved on and and is not really doing doing that in the in the, you know in today's day. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, you know, Flickr. I I haven't been back. I won't be back. Uh, the only thing that kind of scares me is Flickr really is one of the, the last places, and I think you can do it with Google, but Flickr still is a very good resource when you go to the world map. And you're going to go to the world map, you're going to go to a place that you've never been before, maybe you're taking a trip this summer, and you can actually see groups of photos and, and where the hot spots were of where photos are taken. And it was always a good way to get you really quickly into understanding what was there you know what photographs were there. Sadly, most Flickr photos are cell phone photos nowadays, and and they really don't. You know, you 
the the uh, the metadata, the XIF, is just not that important anymore. But back in the day, you used to be able to go somewhere and say, "Man, I, I can't get an understanding of the scale of this show, of this of this place." And you know, you look at some of the camera data and you see how wide where they were standing and how wide they were shooting, and you can start to get an understanding of how how you know what kind of what kind of equipment you need to take. Not like you're going to go there and, and make a copy of exactly what that photographer did, but it gives you a better understanding. Photos just don't tell it different. Tell you know it doesn't give justice to a location. And you know I remember the first time we went to Horseshoe Canyon in Page, Arizona. We we thought it was wide. We didn't think it was that wide. Yeah. And it wasn't until the second time we went that we had lenses that were wide enough to handle the entire view. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh, well. Is there any other camera news going on out there? Uh, Insta 360's got something coming out. I have no idea. They're saying on uh, March 22nd, which I guess, is that Monday? Apparently GoPro. I think I think GoPro, uh, it's Tuesday. The Tuesday. 22nd is Tuesday. I think, uh, not GoPro, DJI. DJI has got something coming out on the 21st. I'm not holding my breath for the Insta 360 camera. Insta 360 camera. Uh, you go on their website to try to find any specs. It says, hey, do you want a sneak peek? Get in the back of my van. I got candy. Well, what they did the equivalent, which is, hey, give us your email address. We're going to send you a sneak peek. And then they send you the, to the YouTube page to their public video. And the video is really short, and it's just a bunch of images, but it doesn't tell you anything. Of course it doesn't tell you anything. But, but come on, Insta360. This is the same kind of crap they did. When they came out with the Insta360 1R, that modular camera thing, and they came out with that camera five years after we bought the Insta 1X, and it's the same damn resolution. Nothing has changed. The Insta360 1X was a 5.7K resolution. The Insta360 1X2, 5.7K resolution. The Insta 1R, 5.7K. I mean, what do they think we're doing? (laughs) <laughs> maybe people see a new camera and say oh wow i need to ha-, you know they're they're giving them the you know the apple iphone thing which but at least apple iphone innovates but you know how many people are out there are buying something new just to buy something new that's that's ridiculous if this insta 360 camera uh if it's a 360 camera and it and it has a, a higher resolution than 5.7k then maybe then we'll then we'll probably get it because I've been looking to upgrade the 360 camera without going to you know eight thousand dollars for a you know for a, a new virtual tour camera, and uh, if it's over five point seven k, we're good. Problem is, I think it's still going to be five point seven k. We'll see. We'll figure it out uh, when we talk about 360 cameras and and why is five point seven k so uh, so important? Well, that is because a 360 camera takes 360 degree video and photos. Of course, the 5.7K video is 5.7K, is uh, where the, the 360 video is 5.7K. And but you got to realize that 360 degrees around the camera, up and down, that's all. That's all 5.7K. And very rarely are you going to be able to use an entire 360K photo. If you flatten out a 360 uh, video, it looks like it, it's crazy. It's a 16 by 9 resolution. Is it 16 by 9? I don't I think know. it's 1 by 2. 
I can't remember right now. I, I know the photos are, I believe the photos are double. But anyway, when you look at an image, it's, uh, it's, it's one to two or 16 by nine. And you can see the front of the camera and the back of the camera and the winding and warping between the two in one 16 by nine rectangle. That's 5.7K. You're rarely going to use that entire swath of video. Unless you're 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 putting out a video or you're putting out a like a like a um, like a real estate tour to the point where somebody can go in there and they can look up down left right they can zoom in they can zoom out and they can move the view with their camera that's great VR VR or, or those things but for other videographers and like what we do um, especially when we're doing our, our our YouTube stuff we do what's called a reframe. And we take that 5.7K video and then we move it so that it's only it's uh, it's only like one view of, um, let's see, 5.7 divided by 2. We move that, that view so that we're looking in one specific direction. Right. So therefore, 360 photo, you're, you're basically moving to a 180 degree photo and which basically is um, instead of 5.7 K now you're down to 2.85 K. Well, you're still looking at a 180 degree view and it's, it's fish eyed to hell. You need to then zoom in. At what point do you take that 2.85 K you zoom in and uh, let's see two point. Uh, what is it? 28 50. And you divide nineteen twenty. I mean, you're you're not zooming much in before you get down to ten eighty p. And that's where the problem is. The more you zoom in and reframe, zoom into a a a a normal. I say normal as in you know normal humans viewing view. You zoom into a normal view. Um, you're losing resolution quickly. So that's why you know 5.7K is okay if you're shooting 1080p or 720p video, but uh, but man, I'd love to have an 8K, 8K 360 camera. Yeah. And five years ago, when they were coming out at 5.7K, it was great because that's where we were. But with everything else enlarging as time goes on, right? We need our 360s to enlarge also. I mean, there's a lot of people still making 1080p content. And that frame size is 1920 by 1080 pixels. Well, we started shooting 4K so that we could either uh, either rescale it down to 1080p or we can have, you know, if you're shooting at 4K, you can zoom in to, you can zoom in, you know, two times and you're still at the quality of 1080p. It's not going to start falling apart. So therefore, you can do some of these, you know, Ken Burns effects where as you're shooting video, you can pan in, you can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can kind of move around. But since we've been shooting 4K, we've just been producing video at 4K. And that's where it becomes a problem. Right. Have I had anybody complain about having four, having 360 reframed video in a 4K? No, but it kind of bugs me. I think it's unique enough at the moment that it's not terrible. And maybe not that many people are really watching on 4K resolution screens. I'm not really sure, but 
It is what it is. Right. Oh, well. Um, if Insta360 comes out with another camera that is 5.7K, I don't, I don't know what they're doing. They're just trying to, you know, trying to, to capture the people that are that are interested in new shiny things, I guess. But I hope it's I hope it's better resolution. I hope it's better image and video resolution because um, we bought a a Mi Sphere and then they changed it to an Advent Madventure. It was a Xiaomi X I A O M I. When did we buy those damn three sixty cameras? They were about the same time, only the one was better at video, which was... No, the, no, 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 no. We had the, the Mi Spheres for a, a like year three or four three, years before one? the Insta360 One X. Okay. And these these Mi Spheres still take higher resolution photos than the Insta360s. Right. We still run a Mi Sphere that is old as hell because it takes great 360 degree still images. The Insta360 beats it in as far as video is concerned, but I mean, come on, what are we, what are we doing here? We're, I think we're at a point where the small form factor cameras can only do so much, and uh, and and you know, until they redesign the whole thought, make maybe make everything bigger, you know, put you know larger sensors in there. We're just not going to get to where we need to be, and, th and then we have to have a processor in there that takes those two. 190 degree images they're 190 because it gives them you know 10 and 10 degrees to play with to stitch in the software then we need software that can stitch a much higher resolution file uh, i don't know whatever we'll see yeah we'll see what happens let's get on to uh let's get on to our topic we're already uh we're already half an hour in okay whose birthday is it miss anna atkins tell me a little bit about anna atkins well, I know I've talked about her in the past, and she's one of my favorite people to talk about because she's most famous for her making of cyanotypes. And um, first, let me just tell you some stats about her. I know that's the boring part, so let's get that out of the way. But she was born on March 16th, 1799 in Kent, England. And it, her mother died within a year after her birth, never recovering from giving birth to her. So she was raised by her father. Her mother was Hester Ann, and her father was George, John George Children. And he was the first president of the Royal Entomological Society of London. But because of that, it opened doors for Anna. And he was also associated with the British Museum. Okay. Um, in 1825, she got married, but she never had any children. So I think, in a way, her work with photography was, you know, how she lived her life yeah and um she died in 1871 so she was 72 years old so she had a pretty long life yeah but she lived her entire life in kent which at that time for a woman really wasn't that rare um but those are the stats and um for a woman wasn't that rare what living in kent living in one area and not moving too much and okay yeah i mean hey I still have some. I still have some people from high school that they lived in in the town that I grew up in. They all die in the town that I grew up in, and they right. won't travel the world. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But back then, I guess it was easier. It was easier to to, to stay put and be happy. Right. Huh. That's interesting. But Anna was most famous for her work with cyanotypes. Okay. And she got into cyanotypes because one of their neighbors 
both at, whenever she was an adult and as a child was Sir John Herschel, who was the inventor of the cyanotype process. And I know we've talked about him before also. He was a mathematician and astronomer, but he also made a lot of advancements in photography. And he was a close friend of her father and her husband. Interesting. And what I find really cool about it is that the copy of uh, the book that she first made, which was called British Algae Cyanotype Impressions, that she gave to Sir John is in the New York City library. Okay. So it's not that far away, and you can make appointments to go see it, which I hope to do someday. Yeah. Uh, Sir John Herschel was a very interesting guy. He was uh, what they would call polymath, and polymath was the the older, nicer way of saying jack of all trades, because he had a uh, he had a, a very intense knowledge of a significant number of subjects, and that's basically what a polymath is. He was born in 1792. When was Anna Atkins born? Uh, eight, eight, 1799. 1799. Okay, I thought for some reason they were. Hmm. For some reason, I had thought that um, that uh, Sir John was was actually older, a lot older than than Anna, but it only was seven years older. Yeah, so that's interesting. It makes friend. It makes sense that they were friends. Uh, well, absolutely. Well, for some reason, I thought maybe her father had gotten her hooked up with, um, with um, with Sir John. Maybe Sir John was a friend of, um, John George's children, which was Anna's father. And he but, was. Uh, but oh, but 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 still, it was really inter- It's really interesting, you know, kind of, kind of painting that picture in your brain that that maybe you know Sir John was a lot older than than Anna. Uh, but Sir John was born in uh, Buckinghamshire, England, and then he will die in 1871 as well. May, holy smokes, Anna dies in June 9th. I've never put these numbers together. Anna dies June 9th, 1871. John Herschel dies May 11th, 1871 in Kent, England. <clears throat> yes. That's really cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> they were also friends with. Um, oh, now the name's gonna. That the name's gonna leave me. They're also friends with. Um, uh, oh dang it! <laughs> they were friends with William Henry Fox <laughs> William Talbot. Henry Fox Talbot, thank you. <laughs> and that, that was going to come up later in my discussion. Oh, but, okay. Um. Okay, so so let me not get ahead of you. Anna Atkins, you you said she she made a book. Yes, she made several books. Why but... is this so important, and why is this one of your main talking points when you're when you're giving a presentation on her? It's very important because uh, she was a woman, but it was also the very first photography book. Okay. Although William Henry Fox Talbot was making a book around the same time, but his book didn't come out until 1844 called The Pencil of Nature. Mm -hmm. And it gets credited for being the first commercially available photography book. And that's fine because it's, you know, commercially available photography book. Yeah, great. But Anna Atkins, I mean, she, she hand bound these books. Yes. She made these books by herself. She put in and... Uh, you know, she made she made each cyanotype, painted the chemistry on the page, put this British algae on there, 
And then she put a, you know, she had a little piece of, a, I guess, a, a little piece of mylar that she would write the name on it and put it on the page. That way it would actually put the name in the, the photo. Wasn't it waxed paper that she wrote the names on? I'm not really sure. I thought it was, it, it's some kind of a, of a translucent paper. It could have even been um, oiled paper. Yeah. Well, you're you're talking waxed paper, as in she, and this is very this is a very possible. Back then, they had thinner type thinner type or pa- typing paper, right? And she could write in in pen in thick pen, the name of the thing, and then you know a practice that they would use they would either melt wax on this paper or use like an like a an oil, and that would basically make the paper a little bit transparent. Yeah. Um, I, that's something you need to figure out. You need to try that. You need to take a, uh, you know, try to find as close to the, the thickness of paper as they had back then. And, uh, you know, write your, write your name on it, oil it, wax it, whatever. And, and see if that looks very similar. Right. You know, you need to try that. But more about this book that she made. Um, she was known even before the book came out as a botanist, which at that time, a lot of women didn't go, weren't able to go into the sciences, but she was, and botany is one of the few ones that they allowed women to do as much as they wanted because they saw it as a genteel science. Right. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I guess it was... Well, it was more of a gentleman's thing, probably. Yeah, more of a thing that wasn't as dangerous i guess maybe i don't think it was danger i just think it was the it was the times back then right and uh, and i i it didn't um didn't her father kind of kind of help kick the door down at the at the the british uh, society for her yes um he opened a lot of doors for her and actually she was elected to the london botanical society Wow, in but 1839, that was, but so. that was unheard of. So that's great. I mean, it's you know, and, and it's it's very. I think it's important to say. I don't like when people say, "Oh, the first woman." This well, I think that degrades. Uh, that degrades the work a little bit because it's already it's already hard enough to do this. This is an amazing thing, no matter if you're a man or a woman. But sit there and say, you know, and she was also a woman, or. Um, you know, a lot of things you know happen today. The first African American, this, and it's, and and the thing is, is, um, and and I really don't have a, a leg to stand on, but, you know, it 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 kind of scares me that it, it almost kind of puts that person down because it the the color of their skin didn't didn't make it easier or harder for them to to learn how to be a space pilot or to learn how to do this. Um, just like Anna Atkins, it's, it's nothing uh, now it's important to note that, you know, what, uh, what gender and what ethnicity that, that the people are, but, but the, the headline, I, I just, it just kind of, it just kind of makes me wonder what, what people think when, when it, they, they put that in the headline, but the same thing with Anna Atkins, I mean, you know, creating a book and coming up with this idea and, and having this, uh, this talent and this creativity to make the the world's first first photographic book that's hard for anybody right that's hard for anybody and what's so cool about it is prior to this time books were made by um illustrations that were all hand-drawn and she actually participated in making a book like that with her father prior to making cyanotypes that's interesting was this book well woodcuts 
Um, it was illustrations, hand-drawn pictures. Hand-drawn illustrations in a book. Right. Okay. Um, and it was on shells. There was a shell book that they worked on together for a family friend. I don't remember the full details. Of okay, it. this wasn't a commercially published book. Um, it was more widely available than some other books, but... Um, yeah, I'd I'd be interested in, in researching more of that. I, I it's kind of, it kind of kind of makes me wonder if that's um, if they hand drawn all those or if they 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 hand drew it and then sent it out to get woodcuts made so that they can make several copies. And um, it was illustrations, engravings, and detailed descriptions is how they recorded botanical information. Okay. And so that's how she started off. Okay. Interesting. And Very good. Tell me more um, about Sir John Herschel and her and 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 uh, and the, the process. Tell me more about the, the cyanotype process. Sir John Herschel made the cyanotype process in about 1842, 1843, and he made it so that he could copy his notes. Prior to this, the only way to get a copy of your notes was to hand copy it yourself and just dictate it to yourself, you know, basically just sit there and copy it. Couldn't take it to Kinko's? <laughs> no. And that was what he saw this process for. But she already being a botanist, and she had a lot, wide collection of dried plants already. She looked at it and said, "You know, I'm tired of having to hand draw and make illustrations of all my plants. Let me see if I can use this process and get more detail into my pictures using it." Previously, people would just sketch out the drawings of plants, right? And that's a problem because. What if you got a drawing of a plant from an idiot? <laughs> Not necessarily an idiot, but somebody who maybe wasn't very good at at reproducing what they saw, basically. And sometimes the small details can be lost if you're, you know, you're trying to get the basics, but it's sometimes impossible to get down to the minutest detail. Okay. And algae is can be small depending on the type of algae. Mm. So she used this to make this cyanotype book and she made every page by hand and she made 13 to 17 copies or so i seen a variety of the numbers that she might have made but i know 13 to 17 copies for sure and each book was separated into three to four sections that she would make a new section every few years and hand it out that's why it's so difficult it's so difficult because at what point do you count well, first of all, we're talking about uh, we're talking about you know the nineteenth century, and something a friend gave to other friends. Right. It's very difficult to figure that out to figure out how many books did she make, and then when you when you factor in the fact that she made additions, and then built onto those additions. Well, how many complete books did she make? Well, she may have only made one complete, complete, complete book that was that was the most complete at the end of you know by the time she died, but. Yeah, it's that's that's real difficult. We may never know. We may absolutely never know unless it's in her, you know, somewhere. It's uh, you know somebody recorded that into a a diary or a journal or something. Right. Really wild. And really pretty wild. 
She made extensions to the book until about 1853 when she moved on to her next book, which was Cyanotypes of British and Foreign Plants and Ferns. Okay. Which she worked on with uh, her childhood friend who was also named Anna, but she was Anna Dixon. Okay. And she also made cyanotypes of lace, flowers, and feathers. It is estimated that she made more than 5,000 cyanotypes in her lifetime. Wow, that's pretty cool. Which I thought was kind of really cool. I'm going to do a really quick uh, down, uh, rundown of the cyanotype process, just in case we have any, any new listeners that, that, that don't really know about it. Cyanotype it used to be the old blueprint process before we went to Diazo. Well, if you've ever seen something that is that is a blue and um, and the the lines are white, like a blueprint, uh, that is the one of the that's the original cyanotype process, invented by Sir John Herschel, eighteen forty two. As Christine said, um, it, among among other things, is a, a way to, to really make copies of his notes, and it 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 consists of two chemicals, potassium ferrous cyanide. Uh, which is a distant cousin from potassium cyanide, a a very dangerous chemical. It's it's not it's non toxic in the current form, unless you um, subject it to a, a a high amount of acidity, you heat it, or you taunt it and give it the side eye. <laughs> Ferricomonium citrate is the other one. You mix these chemistry these chemicals up in a certain ratio, and then uh, and then put them together in a one to one. You only mix as much as you want to use that day. You paint it on a piece of paper or fabric or silk. It needs to be natural fibers. It does not work on on a lot of your uh, your synthetics. And then once it's allowed to dry in the dark, you put a piece of British algae over top of it. Sandwich it in you know between a piece of wood and a piece of glass. Put it out in the sun, and the, when the cyanotype uh, the cyanotype will continue to darken wherever the sun hits it. When that darkening starts to reverse or go a little bit of a metallic sheen, um, you know, it's a that that tells you that that part of the uh, of the paper or the fabric has received as much sun as much sun as it will at what we call D max. That is the maximum darkness that you're going to get, and then you can take everything out, um, put it uh, disassemble everything in the in regular room lighting, and then and then rinse that in just plain water. And, uh, and what's going to happen is where you've blocked the action of the sun hitting the cyanotype, it stays white. And, and where, you, where the sun hit, it goes completely uh, dark blue. And then you've got several shades in between as well. So, all right. Um, let's go on to, uh, she was friends with uh, William Henry Fox Talbot. Yes. And uh, tell me a little bit about that relationship. They mostly corresponded through correspondence so they wrote letters to each other and i know early on in 1841 so before she got into cyanotypes um her father wrote to talbot my daughter and i shall set to work in good earnest till we completely succeed in practicing your invaluable process interesting so they actually that's when she received her first camera okay and it is conjectured whether it was her or William Henry Fox Talbot's wife, Constance, who were the first female photographers, hmm. which I find very interesting also, but that may be a question that may never be able to be answered because none of the photographs either of the women took are remaining. But they were friends. They probably worked on this together. 
Right. So that interesting. They probably got together and took photos together. So maybe they did it together. Hmm. And does it really matter just to know that? <sighs> I know we like to credit people with things, but does it matter? Both both Anna and Constance were amazing people. Everything I've read, they were just amazing, amazing people. It would have been nice. I mean, and may and maybe they didn't have any firsts. It would have been nice to say, um, and I guess this goes against what I said earlier. The first, you know, the the first female photographer. It it would have been nice to say. Anna Atkins or Constance Talbot was definitely the first one to do this or the first one to do that. So I'm not sure. I you know I'm kind of I'm kind of on the fence about that, and and maybe they were they were friends enough that they didn't really care. Right. I I doubt that was it. It just it just was lost. It's just been lost to history. I think it would be really cool though to have some of their photographs. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or see what they were photographing. I My agree. guess is plants for plants. Anna, but <laughs> I could be wrong. That's pretty good. I just find it so interesting with all her work and she actually being a botanist they she donated all her dried plants to the british museum in 1865 so she used them to make her books and then found other uses for them hmm. it's interesting but i just find it so interesting that she knew all these men and was renowned in those communities and still gets credited for it. Yeah, absolutely. At a time where that just didn't happen for women. Hmm. Whenever she was making photographs, she would have been making the calotype process. Can you tell us a little bit about that process, John? Oh, yeah. The calotype was, uh, you know, you've. Calotype has a very interesting history with the daguerreotype. And um, over in France, uh, Louis Daguerre was was working on a process that was um, a copper plate, silver plated, highly polished, sensitized with iodine fumes and developed with mercury fumes. About the same time, William Henry Fox Talbot was over in England and creating what was called a calotype process. Uh, uh, rumor has it that his mother said, you should have called it the Talbot type. And people sometimes this day still call it the Talbot type, but... William was not so full of himself like Louis Daguerre to name the process after himself. It is uh, using uh, using just standard paper, and you're uh, you're coating that paper with um uh, with basically a salt solution, and you're making uh, you, you're you're making kind of a salt solution on this paper, kind of like a salt print, and then you're brushing on a silver, and you're making basically silver chloride. Um, and this was a first, uh, you know, called a photogenic drawing. And the interesting part about this is when you talk about silver nitrate, silver nitrate darkens in the presence of light. Well, that, that sensitivity goes up with standard table salt, but it goes up more with metallic salts. Which we which we see later in history with the the wet plate collodion process and beyond, when um, uh, Frederick Scott Archer will take and take that idea of salts and silver and then introduce you know uh, uh, 
uh, ammonium iodides, potassium bromides, you know, bright bromides and iodides, these metal salts to to the uh, emulsion, which makes it so much more sensitive than uh, than than uh, you know just using regular regular mineral salt. But but yeah, the the, uh, the calotype was was kind of interesting because it was you know practically a paper negative. It was a negative that you would shoot and you can then make several copies of by sandwiching that with another sensitized piece of, of paper. And you could also sensitize a cyanotype and, and sandwich those together and you can make prints from that. Uh, the daguerreotype you couldn't. And, and that's kind of one of, the, one of the, the cruel twists of nature because Louis Daguerre, who was a showman who wanted to be in, you know, his, wanted his name in lights, he develops a process that is uh, that one person can see at a time. In fact, the Daguerre used to be nicknamed the mirror with a memory. And Daguerre, who was this uh, this this amazing showman, he ends up creating a process. Like I said, one person can see at a time. And William Henry Fox Talbot, who some accounts kind of made kind of make him seem like an, an introvert, William Henry Fox Talbot creates something that could be reproduced millions of times. And uh, and eventually, that's the process that that will that will further photography. Uh, the calotypes process. The, the problem with the calotype was, well, it was a problem, and it was it was also a, a positive thing because the calotype used paper, and therefore the emulsion would soak down into the fibers of the paper, and then you also had paper fibers as well. When you're putting a, a negative, you know, putting a a piece of uh, putting a, a finished calotype that is a negative, therefore the whites are black and the blacks are white and everything in between. And you're putting it on another piece of paper that is coated with that same emulsion. Not only do you have those paper fibers kind of coming through, but you also have the fact that that image is not just sitting flat on a on the surface. That silver chloride is actually intertwined in those paper fibers, and that creates a little bit of a softness to the image. And it's kind of it's kind of a cool artistic kind of look. It's kind of an ethereal, you know. It's it doesn't have to be tack sharp. Doesn't have to be documentary, and and that kind of you know kicked people off to thinking about artistic processes for this. You know, this is a, as an art instead of a, uh, you know, just a a perfect reproduction, which is what photography had a problem shaking uh, when it when it came to um, you know kind of headbutting with with painters. I wonder if that's why Anna Atkins used the cyanotype process instead of the calotype process. If it wasn't as sharp, that might have been what she was going for. Well, well, here's the problem: the cyanotype process suffers from the same thing. That's true. It's you're still talking about um, you're still talking about emulsions that soak into paper fibers, and the cal the the calotype process was very much more difficult. Think about it. You've got um, you've got silver nitrate, which has to be has to be put on a uh, well, silver iodide and silver chloride, which has to be put on a piece of paper in the mm, darker. You could probably have used a lamp light. Ideally, you would have used a you know a kerosene lamp behind a a red a red trans you know transparent piece of glass as a safe light. But and then once you did that, you you need to you need to fix the image. Sodium thiosulfate, hypo. You need to fix the image. And then you had to do it all over again and then sandwiched it together. I mean, cyanotype is so much easier. That's true. And 
not that not that Anna could couldn't have have made her book on British algae with just one uh, one go round of the calotype, because after all, the calotype and the cyanotype are both negative processes. But maybe she just liked the color blue. I'll maybe go with that she one. was just weird like that. Does that mean I'm weird too? Yes, since I love it. Christine likes the color blue as well. <laughs> um, but anyway, as we're talking about these these chemicals kind of soaking into the paper. That kind of helped out with um, the 1860s and the 1850s when Frederick Scott Archer kind of used the, the basic thought of the calotype. And instead of putting it in paper on paper, he put it on glass. Because paper, when you're making an image, when you're making a positive from a negative and you're, and you're sandwiching those two papers together, it takes a long time. It takes a long time for sun to penetrate that paper to get that, that that mating piece as dark as possible where it needs to be dark. Well, Frederick Scott Archer kind of used the same thing. Not only did he solve the the, sh the sharpness issue by making uh, basically making sure that this this emulsion sits on a piece of glass, but he also fixes the reproduction properties so that you know of course a, a piece of glass is a lot more a lot easier for light to get through than a piece of paper. Yep. And then the rest goes on. You just have to make sure you put the emulsion side down so that you get better clarity. Oh, absolutely. You always touch emulsions to emulsion. And, uh, you know, and we can get to, uh, we can get to, you know, an a, a interesting gentleman um, by the name of William H. Mumler who made spirit photographs. And the spirit photographs were just a little out of focus, the spirits. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the theories that he did there was that he put, uh, he put already made spirits that were already on a negative uh, as he was making the as he was making the prints from them he stacked another piece of glass and may have put the emulsion in or out so that there was a a thickness of glass between that and what happens is when you're when you're exposing this uh, this piece of paper and you're 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 exposing this contact print if you're exposing it from a single point source of light, then then you're okay. But the problem is, is when you're exposing it outside or maybe inside with, with us, with modern gear, we're exposing it with a plate burner or we're exposing it with a UV bulb exposure box. Um, the problem is the light comes in from every direction and then turns that sharp image kind of fuzzy, kind of out of focus because light's bouncing around everywhere you're going to get kind of a ghostly image and uh, but yes definitely emulsion to emulsion for that for sure and that's most of the information we have about anna adkins she yeah. made her book she knew all these famous people one other really interesting fact that i found about her is that she signed her work aa mm -hmm. and in 1889 a gentleman was writing an article and thought that AA stood for anonymous amateur. And that was quickly corrected by the director of the British museum of natural history. But Ooh, that was what tw almost 20 years after Anna had died. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good. I'm Hey, I'm glad the director of uh, the museum of natural British museum of natural history, uh, you know, kind of came to her defense. But I just thought that was interesting that they, thought that it stood for something different or well maybe back then it did 
that That's that would true. be something interesting to go through, like um, Project Gutenberg and some of the old books and some of the old magazine articles at the time, and see if that really that really was a thing. But to know that she was still known enough in those communities that long after her death that th- at least the director still knew who she was. Is that really tells cool. me that she that that she made you know she made a big splash in in that community, right? And it's hard to understand. I mean, you know, did she? Um, you know, is she the George Carlin of, of comedy or is she the carrot top of comedy? Sounds like she was the George Carlin of comedy. She made a big splash in that community. And, uh, and the fact that we still, you know, we still know about her. We still talk about her today. Uh, Christine always talks about this to, um, to her kids classes and, and discusses, uh, Miss Atkins and, and, uh, Talbot and Herschel and, and everybody. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's really nice to be able to include her in our early discussions about early photography. Yeah, very cool. And those uh, that 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 duo uh, worked on a couple other things as well. I'm sure um, I'm sure uh, Anna had worked with uh, with Herschel on uh, on some of the other processes that uh, that we like. And and to be honest with you, Anna probably helped John uh, Herschel with a process he calls anthotypes which is pigments from plants. Being a botanist, I'm sure she knew which ones made good colors and such. So that and is so probably a definite. Therefore, that is, that is Christine, that is your homework. You're going to find out if Anna helped John with the botany of uh, the anthotype process. And we'll make that another episode. We'll make I'll that, try. Uh, we'll make that an episode. There might be nothing about it, but let's, let's see if we can find out. Because I, I tell you what, that just makes... It just makes obvious sense for the botanist to help out the the polymath with a with a photographic process made of plants. <laughs> Let's all figure that out. But uh, I think that's the end for tonight. Yeah. Happy birthday, Anna Atkins. Happy and birthday. and uh, my question for everybody today is: Have you ever worked with the the cyanotype process? And if you have, what do you think of it? Uh, and this this process used to be, you know, you could you can get paper. They call it sunprint paper, or and you can buy paper on uh, on the usual online stores, or you can buy kits. If you come out to one of our events, uh, we do uh, we do typically sell the cyanotype kits as well, and that uh, that has all the instructions and has some private videos that you can go online and follow along with. And then if you have any problems or questions, you can always shoot us an email, but. Cyanotypes are very cool. They're they're uh, they're non-toxic, but you know, just like any chemical, we definitely want any uh, any youngsters to be uh, to have parent or guardian supervision while while practicing them. This is a, a beautiful art, and uh, and we want this to live on. We want kids to be exposed to uh, you know to some of these really cool processes. You know, it kind of dangles that carrot of giving of getting them into. Uh, <laughs> getting them into maybe maybe more photographic processes but i've always said if if one youngster that that we've taught a process to it, it passes it on to somebody else in the next generation we've we've definitely uh we've definitely done our job and and that's really important to us but you can do uh you can you can make you can make your own cyanotypes you can buy sunprint paper i believe people sell paper on etsy as well yeah, it's all kind of all kind of fun stuff. But it, have you ever worked with cyanotypes? 
And, uh, and if so, let us know because you can always connect with us on our Facebook group or through email at podcast at underaredglow.com. And as always, your comments might just make it into a future episode. As always, a big thank you to everyone for continuing to join us. All the love and support we receive from people liking us on Facebook, subscribing and rating us on your podcast platform of choice. And also a big thank, uh, thank you to our Patreon and subscription supporters. Starting at just a buck, you can get our shows early with our supporters only after show with all without ads. Please be sure to check out other support, supporter tiers as well, which are geared toward bringing you along with our darkroom projects and great rewards. All of the links can be found in our show notes and also on www.underredglow.com. And now with episode 87 down, it's been our absolute pleasure spending this time with you. Please be sure to subscribe to Under Red Glow. And if we've earned your recommendation of the photographers of any skill of our process, we would certainly appreciate you sharing us with them. A big thank you to my co-host, Christine Milliker. She came up with the uh, with the topic and the research for, for, this, uh, for this talk. And of course, everyone for listening. If you're listening on Patreon or our supporter page, stay tuned for the after show. Thanks for tuning in and look forward to visiting with you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.